Okay, I want you to think about something that I, I just, I don't know why this dawned on me. My mind sometimes goes in strange directions. You just need to know that. Yes. But, you know, as I started doing reading and thinking about the background as to how we got to where we got to today, you know, people often say, how's our world gotten here? And how's our church gotten here? And what's going on in, in our country? You know, and what's going on in the church? And why have we drifted so much? And, you know, we want to go back to the good old days. You know, a lot of people miss the fact that what is going on today is not new, number one. And number two, the seeds and foundation was actually planted centuries ago. Some of the things that I'm going to say to you might surprise you. But I just want you to think about something. When you think of different ages or eras down through the centuries, now, for example, when I say Stone Age, you know, you, you've got a certain mindset when I say it. But when you hear the word, the phrase, Dark Ages, what do you think about? Of course you think about poverty and struggles and death and, you know, people were oppressive to each other and education took a back seat. I mean, there's all kinds of images that come to your mind during the Dark Ages, right? As to world, where the world was at that time, right? So, when you hear the word or phrase enlightenment, what do you think of that? Learning. Learning. Now, it's very fascinating because during the Dark Ages, people were seeking the Lord. The Enlightenment introduced people questioning faith. And Jesus is the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? Yes, John. Um, wait a second. First of all. Here you go. Was there a dissemination of the word in the gospel during the dark ages? Yes, but not um, not in terms of you know education at universities and schools and things like that. But people continued to seek the Lord, you know, uh, because they were desperate for the Lord during the dark ages, you know, because there was so much poverty and so much death that people were seeking the Lord. So the word did spread during that time, but not. You know, not in the same way maybe as we think about people going out and doing evangelism like we might think about evangelists going out today or missionaries going out today. But the gospel did spread during that time and people did seek the Lord during that time. And I would say that the Christian faith was the common faith during that time, you know, throughout the empire. Okay, not totally because there was still paganism, you know, that was also throughout the empire. But people were intentional about walking the walk and sharing their faith. It was during the Enlightenment that things started shifting. And here's what I mean by that. What is associated or what is thought of when people think about the Enlightenment? You know, the first, the first thing that dawns on people when they think about the Enlightenment um, is that, you know, it's, it's the introduction, if you will, of people really beginning to think. Uh, Descartes, you know, I, I think, therefore I am. It was, it was people beginning to think about the cosmos, you know, the natural laws, and moving on from Aquinas, who talked about natural laws, but in a different way. You know, Aquinas 
talked about natural laws and talked about order and talked about creation. But as soon as Descartes came on the scene and said the words, I think, therefore I am, he also said something else and introduced a whole new idea, and that is, um, if I think, I can doubt. If I think, I can doubt reality. If I think, I can begin to question what I've been told. And so as much as I think, therefore I am, now I've become an individual to think on my own. So where Aquinas was saying, there are natural laws, what's he saying? That God in his revelation has created all that is, that the church... The church is trying to teach people according to God's ways. And so there is this idea of objective truth, and it's God's truth. But now Descartes comes on the scene, and he says, I think, therefore I am. And I can doubt, and what will come down the line, by the way, over the next three centuries, is I can create my own reality. If I can think, if I can doubt, I can create my own reality. That's what's going to come down the line. Stay tuned. Okay? Not long after Descartes came a deist, some would even say agnostic, philosopher by the name of David Hume. David Hume was an empiricist. And because he was an empiricist, he said, you know, what we know can only come from what we see. And we can't see God. And therefore, we can't say that God created all that is. And therefore, we don't need God to be a creator. Now, that was 1700s. This is not a new this is not a new idea. Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote a book entitled The Noble Savage in the 1700s. He said the fall never happened. Okay, the Garden of Eden. And what happened in the Garden of Eden? Eden never happened. Voltaire. Now there's a famous name. How many of you know of Voltaire and what Voltaire said? Voltaire is interesting. He lived from 1694 to 1778. Voltaire was very, very bold. He said that Christianity would die out by the next generation. Because we are so in intelligent, we know so much today, that we don't need Christianity anymore. So Christianity will die out within the next generation. That was in the mid-1700s. Just so you understand what's going on, you know, about, not quite, you know what, three centuries ago, four centuries ago? You know, you need to understand, this, this is old stuff that was being touted, okay? Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant, who talked about pure reason. Okay, Immanuel Kant, who lived in the early 1700s to 1804. And 
he talked about humanity coming of age. He says, humanity has emerged from immaturity. Okay, this was probably about 1750, 1760. Humanity has emerged from immaturity. Where in the past, humanity relied on external authorities such as the Bible, the church, or the state. And we were told to believe and therefore told how to live. Okay? We no longer needed, need these external authorities because our ability to reason, we have arrived. Does that sound familiar? This is the mid-1700s. No creeds or customs need bind us anymore. And our destiny lies in, you'll love this one, progress. Our destiny lies in progress. The, the sources we now need to inform us. No longer the Bible, no longer the church. No longer any authority. We have reason, we have nature, and we have progress. Those three are what will inform us in order to be able to mature, move forward, become our own person. Did you catch that? Nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. Reason, nature, and progress. You know, some of this thinking, by the way, slid into our Constitution and Bill of Rights. We are endowed with inalienable rights. In other words, they're obvious to everyone because they're in here, because of reason. Because of nature, not because of God. See, we as Christians would read that, well, God has given us that. It's not what was going on there. That's very Kantian, what was in that statement, by the way. You know what the religion of rationalism really is? Marxism. The religion of rationalism is Marxism because it says we can create a utopia if we just all work together and we all use our minds because we're all good people. And we're all just going to make it work together because we're all bright and we're moving forward and things are getting better. Right? Now, on the theological side of things, this is, this is all the rational side of things and the philosophical side of things. Let's talk about the theological side of things that is now beginning to react to all of this. Okay? The first place that we begin to see the influence is a school called the Tübingen School. The Tübingen School. Okay? And the influence came in biblical higher criticism where we're now using our minds. The original intention was to come to understand the Bible better. The man who started this idea was a guy by the name of F.C. Bauer. 
in the late 1700s is when he was born, but this happened in the early 1800s. Um, but what quickly happened, the authorship of various books was questioned. The composition of those books was questioned. The historical period in which certain books were written was questioned. And the purpose of why various parts of the Bible were written was questioned. In other words, the Bible was no longer reliable. The prophets really didn't prophesy. They were basically reporting what already happened. And they were given false names. One of the more famous theories of the Old Testament is known as the Wellhausen Theory. Julius well Wellhausen wrote it, 1878. Has anybody ever heard of that, by the way? It, um, he said that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, there were four authors, or four schools. J stood for the Yahweh, or Jehovah. Okay? That was one school. So you will sometimes see the reference to Jehovah in the first five books. Uh, you know, I am who I am. Okay? Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. Jehovah's really a made-up name, if you ever know the history of that. Yahweh is the real name, okay? That's a long story. We won't get into that now. The Elohist. You know, El Shaddai, El Elohim. Anytime there's El, E-L. That's the second writer that edited the five books of Moses. Okay, these are four different editors. The third one is the priestly sect that came in and said, you know, we need to get a little more of this ritual stuff in there and the dietary stuff and the, the priestly stuff. So heavily influenced, for example, the book of Leviticus. And the fourth writer, author, is the Deuteronomic author. And so instead of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, whatever name you want to give those first five books, which up until the mid-1800s, late-1800s, <coughs> was traditionally and always thought to be written by Moses, and it even talks about in the Scriptures being written by Moses. <coughs> Wellhausen said, well, you know, as I read this, there's really an influence by this school, and there's an influence by this school, and there's an influence by this school, and this school, and you can see the evidence in these very... And if you ever see the first five books where someone has taken it, and started dividing me up with all these authors, it's ridiculous. And there's debates about it. Just like the Jesus Seminar people who debate what Jesus really said in the Gospels. If you've ever seen that today. It's the same ridiculous argument. Most scholars today, by the way, most scholars today say this is garbage. Most scholars today. I'm not talking about just... Biblical, conservative, evangelical scholars. I'm saying most scholars today say, this is so arbitrary. Let me tell you what happened when this came out initially. Everybody said, this is great! Why? Because everybody loves to jump on a bandwagon that sounds intelligent. They just love to jump on that. 
And that's what happened in the early days of the Tubingen School and the higher criticism. The Wellhausen theory was the darling theory. Another guy, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher was the darling theologian. Okay, Wellhausen just, he was famous for this. Schleiermacher was the darling theologian. He said that nothing in the Bible supernatural really happened. Now he believed the Bible to be kind of the Word of God. Kind of. But all the supernatural stuff is really myth. It didn't really happen. So the Bible took on a more intellectual disposition that you don't really believe that stuff. After all, we're educated people. We can't believe this stuff. It has to be myth. This is the 1830s. This is not anything new or modern in terms of the way we think about modern, okay? James Hutton, The Theory of the Earth, through doubt on the scientific world and origin, through the scientific world, the origin of creation. And uh, he just said, you know, creation didn't really happen. Now there is the foundation for the Big Bang Theory in the theological world. And that was in 1788. D.F. Strauss, 1835, wrote a book, The Life of, of Jesus. He questioned the deity of Jesus, whether Jesus was really God, 1835. You know, we all were appalled when Bishop Spong said it, for those of you that were involved in the Episcopal Church during that day. This guy was saying it back in the 1830s at the Tubingen School. Okay, so, I mean, I'm just telling you that what has now happened in the United States and the church has literally been going on for almost two centuries in theological circles. And so, you know, we're all saying, oh my gosh, how could this have happened? You know, what's happening to our church? It was derailed a long time ago. It's just slowly, slowly permeated and become more and more to the forefront. That's what's happened. And it infiltrated the culture. A guy by the name of Benjamin Silliman in the early 1800s said the Bible has nothing to do with science. It's not a scientific book. Now, one of the crowning blows, you know, not as far as many of us would be concerned today in Christian circles, but at the time, uh, was Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 and the Descent of Man in 1871. Those were crowning blows to a lot of people in the Christian world that said, you know, God created everything that is, everything was created, you know, about 4,000 B.C., you know, so it's a relatively new earth, or as they call it, the new earth theory as opposed to the old earth theory. And so that a lot of people were just really, really shaken by things like um, all these questions that were coming theologically, and then Darwin comes out with this, what a lot of people would say is real science. You know, evolution when it comes to the earth, when it comes to the species, when it comes to the origin of man. And uh, by 1869, all of this was hitting the United States. 1869 is when all of this really hit the United States full force. <clears throat> Wait. 
that you can pinpoint it to one day? That's a great question. Why 1869? Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why I can say approximately 1869. Um, the first is, is that we had a couple of wonderful things happen in our country, one of which held it at bay from a theological perspective, the Great Awakening. Okay? The second would be the Second Great Awakening. However, on the heels of the Second Great Awakening, that's what gave it momentum. I'll get to that maybe tonight. Okay? <coughs> the other thing that held it at bay was the Civil War. People were too preoccupied with the Civil War and then the rebuilding after the Civil War. Once the Civil War was over, once the rebuilding happened after the Civil War, once people got back to somewhat normalcy, and on the heels of the Second Great Awakening, people started paying attention to what was going on overseas in the scientific world, in the, in the academic world, in the theological world. And as that began to hit the United States, and you know, it's interesting because by and large for a lot of people it would be a shock, it would be appalling, but for those who prided themselves in the intellectual, which we'll get to in a little bit, they would say, this is great. They always do. This is great. Because we want to be on the cutting edge. Okay? We'll get to that in a second. Great. Yes. Hold it. Yes, Jean. Could we say that the Civil War held it at bay? Because when people are in great stress and need, they turn Christ? Yes, I would say that the Civil War also kept it at, at bay because uh, people would turn to the Lord, would rely on the Lord, but also for practical means. They just didn't have the time. You know, they didn't have the time, they didn't have the energy, they didn't have the resources to look. So it would be a combination of spiritual reason and also just practical reason. I think, um, I think one other uh, reason would be, too, during the Civil War, I think people's psyche would have been shaken and they would have said, oh my gosh, we are so, uh, let's put it in this way, we're so depraved. The fact that we can, brother against brother, as a nation be divided, kill each other, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, some would say that we enslaved. And then you come out of that, you start to rebuild and you get momentum. And then people have that positivistic outlook and say, okay, now we have no momentum. Now we can make, begin to have progress again. You know, and they, they, after a generation or two, begin to think, we're good. And it's all good. And it lays the foundation for that, too. So it's not any one factor, but you're right. I think that people turn to the Lord during dire times. Certainly Israel, if you look in the Old Testament, that's when they turn to the Lord. When things were good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. You know, it's interesting during those days, just to throw this out there, that people like uh, Blaise Pascal would be ignored. You know, by and large. Not totally, but by and large. Blaise Pascal, for those of you that don't know, he's the one that would, would say in his Ponce's, we all have a God-sized void that only God could fill. You know, which is a brilliant 
a brilliant thought. He also... Everyone has a God-sized void that only God can fill. You know, you try to fill it with all kinds of things. Material goods, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever. You try to fill that void with anything else. And you will, left, you will be left wanting. That only God can fill that void in your life. Because that's how we're designed. Okay? Um, he also, and I teach this in the new members class, by the way. He's the one that came up with Pascal's Wager, which I absolutely love. And you all know what Pascal's Wager is. If you've been through the new members class, you know what Pascal's Wager is. Pascal's Wager goes something like this. God exists or God doesn't exist. I believe, or I don't believe, okay? This is the two possibilities on my side. These are the two possibilities on, on God's side. If God exists and I believe, it is eternal bliss. It's the big win, okay? If I believe and God doesn't exist, it's finite loss. I probably would have done some things if God didn't exist that I didn't do, but then I die, and it's over. Okay? You get that part? Everybody on board with me. If I don't believe and God exists, it's the big negative. Right? I'm in big trouble. If God exists and I don't believe. Now, if I don't believe and God doesn't exist, it's the finite positive. Because I'm going to do those things that I want to do. And then I'm going to die. And it's over. Okay? Now, if you're a betting person, if you're a betting person, is it better to not believe? Or is it better to believe? What's your better bet? Believe. To believe. Exactly. That's Pascal's wager. So Pascal, approaching this as a philosopher and a mathematician, as well as a theologian, said, look, if you have any doubt in your mind, let me tell you the best way to go here. Okay, so that would be Pascal. And people were ignoring him. They were saying, well, we do know better. Because we're operating with reason. Okay? We know better today. What a famous line. Okay, liberalism in the United States. You know, it's really, really interesting. It's not only what happened in Europe with everything that I've just told you. With all the philosophers and the scientists and sociologists and theologians that were writing in Europe. And all that begins to trickle over. It's amazing what gave all of this momentum in churches in the United States. And it was the Second Great Awakening. Why do I say that? Well, because the Second Great Awakening started people thinking spiritually, becoming alive again. And as they became alive again, you know, what sometimes happens is you got the people who are really alive again. And they want to see change happen in their lives. And they want to see change happen in society. But what happens to the fringe element of those who want to see change happen? Well, we want to see change happen too. But do we really need all that religious baggage? Can't we kind of work together? 
And the fringe element in the church says, well, yeah, let's work with those people who are, you know, kind of on the edge, you know? And so you've got these people who are do-gooders, who want to see good happen, that are more interested in social change than they are interested in faith. And then you've got people who lose their faith, you know, or begin to compromise their faith because they're influenced by those people. So you've got this continuum of all these people who want to see social change and all who want to see good happen. And it began from the impetus and momentum of the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, but it wasn't all because it was spiritually motivated. It was post-Civil War, it was post-Second Great Awakening, and it was motivated by, you know what, we want to see some good, positive things happen in this country. So it was also altruistic. And a desire to just bring healing. So all this momentum is happening, and so you've got people that are doing it for intellectual reasons, and you've got people that are doing it for emotional reasons, and you've got people that are doing it for spiritual reasons. But the Second Great Awakening gave this liberal movement kind of a little momentum, believe it or not. And uh, Darwinianism, reason for some people, began to take over. Now, we, we don't need the church. We don't need faith. We don't need God in order to make a difference in society. Okay? Romantic subjectivism. What do I mean by that? We can do this. Again, what are our resources? Reason, nature, and progress. Okay? Another, uh, another idea was positivistic uh, maturation. What do I mean by that? We're becoming mature. And we're very, very positive about human nature because we think we're going in the right direction. And it was post-Civil War. Some of the liberal denominations <coughs> that were formed out of this, by the way, in the church, that took momentum from what was going on socially combined with what was going on spiritually. American Baptists, Congregationalists, Northern Presbyterians, and Disciples of Christ. Those were the four denominations that began, that began the more liberal working out of things in the United States. The schools that were really beginning to follow this more liberal mentality. These will be shockers. Harvard, Yale, and Union Theological Seminary. You know, Harvard and Yale were originally very strong Christian institutions. But once you introduce the higher criticism from the Tübingen School and the scientific movement that was going on in, um, in Europe that was almost anti-faith. Harvard and Yale jumped right on board. And Union Theological Seminary always prided itself in being cutting edge intellectually. So of course they jumped on board too. So that's why you began to see the compromises in the more intellectual end of things. There's another dimension from a psychological and sociological <coughs> perspective. What was really big in seminaries up to this point was Biblical theology, systematic theology, uh, practical theology, uh, and history. What started to creep in at this point and was really not part of curriculum up to this point, pastoral theology. We just want to be nice to people. 
You know, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but you got to deal with the Bible. You know, not just psychological, therapeutic mentality. You got to deal with the scriptures. And what happened is, I mean, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Rogerian counseling. If you're not familiar with Rogerian counseling, this was really big back when I was first in college and then, you know, entering seminary and everything. Rogerian counseling is known for two things. First of all, you do a lot of listening and you do a lot of reflective talking. In other words, you listen to someone empathetically and then you say to them, I hear you say. And the whole point is, you're not there to help someone come out of their problems. You're there to help them fix their own problems. Period. You're not there to tell someone there's really a right way to go. Or there's a godly way to go. You're simply there to just be a reflective listener. Because they'll figure it out after all. They're intelligent. They're good people. They'll figure it out. That was the mentality. So pastoral theology started coming into the fore. And eventually what would happen is the social gospel would come into the fore as well. But modern liberalism was moving quickly into the fore. And Unitarianism. Does anyone have any idea when Unitarianism began to show its face? 1820s and 1830s. Okay? 1820s and 1830s. Very early movement. Okay? And if you don't know what Unitarianism, they think that we should all just believe in one God. That was the first Unitarian movement. That there is no different God. There might be many paths to God, but there is no different God. Okay? It was, it was deistic. Well, the Unitarian movement eventually split, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. Because they didn't think that they were Unitarian enough because they should welcome agnostics and atheists. That there didn't necessarily need to be a God. So there was eventually a Unitarian church split. And they became the Unitarian Universalists. Okay? So, it's amazing. We're Unitarian because we want to bring everybody together. Up, oh, you're not good enough. Okay? So, anyway. Um, Francis Abbott said that we need to be rationalistic and scientific, but theistic. That was the initial uh, formation of the Unitarian Church. Robert Ingersoll took it a step f- further, and he was called the D.L. The DL Moody of free religion. Listen to what he said. Agnosticism was accepted in order to help people rationalize and justify infidelity. Infidelity. In other words, we want people to feel good about themselves. You know, it's okay wherever people are. You know, if they don't believe in God, that's cool too. But we want them to just feel good about who they are. Because after all, people are basically good people. And they're just all trying to figure it out. And we're all making progress together. And you know, it was the church and belief in God that told us that infidelity was wrong before. We don't have to necessarily believe that. Now this is back in the 1830s and 40s. Exactly. So when, when we say, oh my gosh, what happened in the last 50 years? It's not the last 50 years. 
It's almost 200 years in the United States. Longer than that in Europe. It's just become much more mainstream because of the media. And you know what it was called in the Episcopal Church, by the way? It's called the Broad Church Movement. Okay, there were, there were different church movements within the Episcopal Church. I don't know if you know this lingo. High church. That means you like smells and bells and, you know, you know that kind of stuff. Really, a lot of robes. You know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, incense, yeah. Um, then you had the, the low church evangelical movement. And then you had the broad church movement, which basically the broad churches were trying to embrace everybody. Okay, that's what it was called then. And now the broad church movement is like, it, no, all those terms no longer apply because things have changed so dramatically. It's not even the same. And we'll get to that eventually too. Okay. Modern liberalism was born in the 1800s, but you need to understand that when we say liberalism of the 1800s, it is a far cry from liberalism today. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Classic or modern liberalism, which was born in the 1800s, liberalism today would be called uh, postmodern liberalism. Okay? It's really completely different. Uh, because or contemporary liberalism. It's completely different because back then they were saying, we're not sure where the Bible fits in with modern culture. Okay? They were still wrestling with where the Bible fit in. Which is why, for example, in the late 1700s, they were trying to figure out how the Bible fit into governing our country. And how the Bible fit into you know, our society. And they still used it in grade schools and high schools. And they still thought the Bible was worthwhile for its ethical teaching. And that Jesus was at least a good man, if not the Son of God, depending upon where you were in the church. The Bible was a good thing. Okay? We're just trying to figure out exactly what it was. That's what the liberals were saying back in the 1800s. The liberals of today, the postmodern liberals, the contemporary liberals, they're saying, well, we don't necessarily need the Bible. I mean, the Bible has some good stuff in it, but you can take or leave the Bible. Really. You look at the Jesus Seminar people, they are voting on which passages to accept. It. We're talking to the liberals of 20, 30 years ago. The Bible can be doubted, the Bible can be tossed out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus' words, up for debate. There's a big difference between the postmodern liberal and the modern liberal of the 1800s. Because the postmodern liberal doesn't feel the need to wrestle with what the scripture says. Big difference. Okay. What marked liberalism in the 1800s? I've got a list of about a dozen things, but time's up. So we're going to have to talk about this list next week because there may be questions. Okay? Are we good? No homework.
No, 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 no. No, no, no. Is this, am I going too fast? Is this making sense? Okay, good. Just making sure it makes sense. Because, you know, what I'm giving you is like I'm feeding you with a fire hydrant. You need to understand that. I'm covering a lot of history and a lot of theology fast. And so uh, I'm doing the best I can with kind of summarizing because I don't want to make this whole course. But I thought I might get through this list, but we actually are only about 10 minutes away, barring questions, from finishing this class. So we'll see. We'll see where we get. We're doing pretty well. But let's close with prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for the gift of this time. And I thank you for the attentiveness of those here. Lord, this is difficult stuff to both fathom, to understand, and sometimes even to contemplate. To contemplate where we've come from, where we've gotten to, and how to process all this and what we do with it. And how we address the culture in which we live. Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to take in what we need to take in in order to be able to understand why people are where they are. How we can be articulate and patient. How we can be strong witnesses for the sake of your gospel. Lord, give us understanding. Give us discernment. Continue to equip us. And all the while, give us your peace. And bless us and keep us until we gather again in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.